0: They're continuing to load in well here for this big Group 1 event. There's a bit of movement from out wide. This will be confirmation from downstairs. Hello, broadcast. Okay. The clerks of the course have been past fit to start, and Dean and Lewis are in the saddle. The red light goes on. The clerks of the course podcast is set to begin. Ready. And they're off. <laughs> the legend! Trying to get out of Chatakpa very late. It's English a half-length in front. Can he do it? Chatakpa! He's flying! Yes! And excellent, but Makani Diva clear with hundred meters to go! Excellent runs to second. Otto Zun runs on, but a champion becomes a legend! Makati Diva's winning! G'day punters and welcome to a massive edition of the Clarks of the Course podcast. Uh powered by The Sporting Base. Now, The Sporting Base have come on board with us. Head to thesportingbase.com for all your sporting news, interviews, and racing tips as well. There's a whole lot of stuff uh, going on over at the website, so make sure you go check them out. And it's also where you'll be able to find uh, all our episodes as well. Now, as I mentioned, got a huge, huge uh, episode coming up tonight or and. It's a, an, an earlier than usual episode as well. Normally, we don't release on a Tuesday, but uh, leading into the Everest, we thought we should really uh, knuckle down and have a crack and get some really big content out. So I've got a huge interview coming up with a leading rider in the race. I won't give too much away, but um, it's a really, really good listen. Uh, but before we get to that, Dino, and I'll throw to you, are you keen for a, a review of last week? Uh, last Saturday's big Group 1 meetings to begin with, but then also just a quick touch on the Everest as the fields have been finalised.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's always a key. Um, with punning. it's nice to give you out tips uh, for the punters and listeners out there, but it's probably even more important finding those winners the week before with your review, how races were run, forgive give file, um, advantages on tracks and what horses were keen to follow. So, Like you said, it's a chock block week. I don't think there'll be much sleep this week, but It'll all be worth it when we sit down and crack a cold one um, Saturday after uh, Saturday afternoon, ready for the Everest. So, now keen to get a rip into it.
0: That's it. I think I'll be cracking a few more cold ones before Saturday as well as will you, I dare say. But before we get to our big interview, of course, let's do a quick review of uh, the weekend just gone by in racing. It was a massive Group One weekend, uh, not only in Caulfield but also. Down in Sydney in Randwick, where you were covering, how'd you uh, find the day, mate?
1: Yeah, I found them uh, quite well early. Had my eye in early in the first say four races, and then sort of fell off the wagon um, later in the day. There's a couple of seconds with our prime candidate Alligator Blood got out to a nice price, and then had a nice go at our plaquet in the last. So that was a cracking run by her. Um, we'll talk about her a little bit later. But started off good, um, but finished the day. Uh, A little bit behind so uh, that's all right on to next week.
0: That's it now to start with how do we think the uh, track played down there at uh, Randwick on Saturday?
1: Yeah I think if you looked at the first sort of two races you're a little bit worried about those backmarkers uh, making ground but on an overall assessment I think the horses that settled off pace uh, had an advantage on those who settled settled, uh, on pace Um, Probably had something to do with the inside rail in the straight. Uh, I think that was a little bit off. Uh, you would have saw looking at where the races were run and won. Um, the, the finishing positions throughout the, the straight was sort of three, four, five uh, horses off that fence. So it was definitely an advantage for mine uh, to be off pace and off that inside in the straight.
0: And uh, what about the winners on the day? I know you just spoke about getting off the fence there, so that was obviously key. What positions were we settling in the run? Was there anything we took as an advantage or disadvantage uh, for the winners and those behind them in the run?
1: Yeah, for sure. Those up on pace, I guess, uh, that battled on um, throughout the straight that sat in that rails position and then held that rails position probably throughout the straight. Um, five out of the nine winners come from the rails in run, but um, if you have a look, six out of nine of the winners were off pace. So it can sort of be a little bit deceiving there, but – most of those winners that come off the rails, they sort of speared wide and were in that around that four-metre to five-metre, even wider out marker uh, through the straight. So um, you wanted to be – I don't think it mattered as much where you settled in the run, rails or off-rails, but uh, towards the straight, you wanted to be sort of that four-horse four wide line um, and six out of the nine are off pace. So you could see there that definitely was an advantage to sit um, up,
0: up the front Right, well, moving on. Who was your uh, star performer of the entire meeting?
1: I think you had to give it to Montefilia for sure. I think uh, myself, I definitely underestimated this filly going into the race. Uh, it was a good win last uh, two weeks ago, sorry, in the flight stakes, um, but I thought, sort I of thought she got the race set up perfectly for her, um, got that hot temper up front, had a back to follow in Hungry Heart and just peeled off late and was a stronger filly. Uh, as a pedigree state, she'll get better over further, but she was absolutely dominant. Uh, it was one of the bigger goes I've seen in a Group 1 race. who probably didn't notice as much, but she was around that 3 dollars price in the morning and even touched that two forty throughout the day. Uh, got out to a, around that $3.10 price just before the jump. But it was a beautiful patient ride by Collett there. Um, he was stuck on the fence, uh, probably was following uh, one of the horses you want to follow. Then um, he sort of got it back in his lap, um, peeled wide, and her sustained speed, the sectionals, like I'll mention, 8 to the 6, 11.77, 6 to the 4, 12.03, uh, 4 to the 2, 11.80, 200 to finish, 11.96. That's your sustained speed over a long distance of time. Um, you had to love her last 200. just really attacked that line. She's a real line chaser. So um, all those people with future tickets out there looking towards the derby, um, she's right on track.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. It was a big win. Yeah. Um... To notch up, you know, two Group One wins in uh, a short amount of time like that is the sign of a, a serious horse and a serious horse moving forward as well. Was there anything in behind uh, Monophilia from the Spring Champion Stakes that you'd be uh, either keen to follow or that you're putting a forgive tag on? I'd definitely be forgiving Cherry Tortoni. I think. Uh, He had
1: the run of the race, and on the bend, I was quietly confident that was my bet in the race, Um, but then he sort of pulled out, copped the bump, and then just never really let down. He grinded home, so nothing in the stewards' report, but I know that the trainer sort of went to Sydney uh, to trace those dry tracks uh, as he thought um, he was better suited on a dry track compared to wet, but you look at the form, the form says... um, he doesn't mind the cut out of the track, so maybe it was too too dry up there. I'm not too sure, but I'm definitely not sacking um, Cherry Tortoni. The horse you probably want to follow, the big gap back the thirds, Lion Raw um, made a race a bit late. Uh, with Montefilia comes out of a Kembla Grange uh, win prior to that start, so that's a huge leap. Um, comes out of the right stables, doing the right things. So if anyone's to follow out of that race, it's Lion's Raw.
0: Rightio. So Montefilia, the star performer for you. Of the day, have you got a few uh, merit horses from other races on the card that we should be um, giving some merit to and following as we go forward in the spring?
1: Yeah, I'll mention a couple here. So Prime Star, I um, thought it was a cracking run, um, eleven 1, hundred to twelve hundred, straight to fifteen hundred meters, um, out in front. Uh, Pelter got it all on his own, got a couple of breathers, sort of that eight to the six, um, and then. Prime Star landed probably a length or two um, too far back in the run. Uh, Reward off a nice section of his home, faster section of the race, uh, tacked that line. I thought Jet Propulsion's probably a prep off. And um, if you're on the turn and you thought you are in a bit of trouble, but he was able to kick back and um, be right in the finish. Lions raw, like we just mentioned. Plaquette, um, absolutely outstanding run, uh, 100 metres short of her best. Um, Easily uh, day best figures um, in the last race today. Butega, um, I think... Leading towards that golden eagle, gets a seven-kilo weight swing on Cray-Diris, Um and just – it was such a w- weird ride. Went forward first on with Nash and then sort of pulled, pulled him back and then went again. I think that's just not ideal for the horse. He's gone outstanding. Cray-Diris, um, much better suited to a bigger field, proper tempo up in front. Um, he's a nice, nice horse and she's ideal. I was an absolutely outstanding – I mean, I probably uh, – I jumped off. That wasn't a race I was keen to bet in but – if you just watched the run throughout, had absolutely no luck, um, inside-outside horses, dead last and flew late. So they're the merit horses of the day.
0: Yeah, beautiful. So a few there, uh, punters to be riding down and following as we move forward in the spring. I think uh, the form out of that meeting is, uh, as, a, as a whole will um, be quite influential as, as we go forward into further races, do you think?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's a plenty of horses you can follow, that Prime Star, Plaquette, um, definitely horses I'm keen to follow out of that meeting. Um, and the, the way the track played as well, you can always um, bank on there wasn't too much disadvantage, so you're more looking for the horses with the good runs. But that sort of wraps up Ranwick on Saturday for the Spring Champions review. Um, we'll move down to Caulfield, which was probably the bigger meeting of the day um, with the Guineas, Thousand Guineas, uh, we had the Ned Stakes. We've had uh, Katie Queen, Russian Camelot. Um, it was absolutely cracking down that day down there. Um, How did you see him early, mate?
0: Yeah, really good day. It was a. Uh, it's always a good day as we as we said moving into Saturday that um, Caulfield Guineas Day is one of the standouts on on the Caulfield program uh, year round. So, it was nothing less than uh, than really really good. And and to uh, the credit of the staff at the track. It played absolutely brilliantly. I, I cannot give uh, enough praise to the staff who got that track uh, just completely spot on uh, for a big day of racing. I know I've been quite critical in the past of um, of how Caulfield can play on big days, especially when it's uh, on, you know, a dry track. And this track was upgraded to a good three as well during the day, but cannot give them uh, enough praise for the way that they got the track to play. It was an outstanding day of uh, group-level racing.
1: Yeah, I think there was a fair amount of people, especially back in the autumn, um, very critical of the way the track played with that fast lane sort of on the inside, but always growing up, you always referred to Caulfield as such a good betting track, and I think the last couple of meetings have cemented why it is. I think it was played absolutely outstanding, like you said. Uh, We'll move on to get your advantage and forgive uh, horses throughout the run, then we'll move through to races, how they'll run, but um, so like you said, no advantage at all, you thought it played fair?
0: Yeah, I think it played really fair. I mean, once you go through uh, all 10 races where the winner was uh, sitting in the run, uh, where they positioned themselves on the track and then what lane they came down uh, the straight, it was just all a complete mixed bag. And, and that's what exactly what you want on a big day of racing. You don't want a serious pattern to evolve. You love a mixed bag of of how it was run. And that, you know, it shows it, it gives every horse their chance and, and races are more determined by... Uh, tempo and some other factors. So as as far as advantage, disadvantage uh, with in terms of the track, well, I couldn't find any at all. As I said, track played really, really well.
1: Yeah, perfect, perfect, perfect. Always a good uh, <clears throat> a good way for punters to do the form and a track play like that. You can sort of take that every day of the week. Um, races are run. Uh, how are the races run? Rails in run? What lanes are we talking?
0: Yeah, so uh, seven out of the ten, races the winner was sitting midfield or beyond Uh, but as I mentioned before that doesn't mean that anyone up on speed couldn't win so Fake Love in the two-year-old race uh, race one sat in the lead Um, and uh, race two swats that just sat in behind the lead Uh, and then even the ones that were midfield so Fiesta in race four Ole Kirk and Mr Quickie um, at stages during the run, they would fluctuate between being above midfield and just a touch behind midfield. So, yeah, as I said, seven out of ten midfield or beyond in the run, uh, five out of ten settled on the fence at some point in in running. So that means obviously that the other half were off the fence. That's a great start uh, and really shows just how even it was. Um, uh, five out of the ten winners came down lanes one and five in the straight. And obviously the other half or lanes six plus. So uh, I I knew that it played well, but once I'd gone over all the races and studied where the winners were in the run, it really just cemented the fact um, just to how well the track did play.
1: Yeah, exact same. My my review was very similar. It was probably 50-50 and all those sort of factors, rails in run, uh, where they won in the straight, and like you said, in uh, off pace or midfield or on pace. I think all horses sort of got their chances off individual races. Um, Star performer, um, who was your best of the day?
0: Obviously, in a big uh, group one day with 10 races, there's a a lot of standout performances. But for me, uh, the one that I just had to put on top was uh, one that I'm sure a lot of people would agree with. It's Arcadia Queen, star performer for me on the day. So the bar plates came off. Uh, she stepped up to 2,000 meters, finally fourth up, and she was electric in winning that race. Settled last, the tempo was really slow. Uh, the leader, Russian Camelot, uh, some splits here, 1,252 between the 1,600 and the 1,400, uh, 1,299 between the, 400 and the 1,400 and the 1,200, uh, and 1,307 between the 1,200 and the 1,000. So really had the uh, tempo to suit in front, Russian Camelot as it led and went along. But Arcadia Queen was just able to accelerate so well off that slow tempo down the outside of the small field and went past them, especially Russian Russian Camelot, like they were glued to the fence. So her last 600 metres was 33.65. That's the sixth fastest last 600 of the meeting. Her last 400 was in 22.42. That was the third fastest of the meeting. And she actually ran home her last 200 in a meeting fastest 11.43. So she really just turned it on on Saturday. Uh, Dan O'Sullivan comes out with his um, wait for age ratings, and she uh, he had her as a uh, Saturday best of all around the grounds, 105.0. That's not even her career peak highest. That's her third career peak highest. So there's... Uh, there's there's definitely a case to say that she will go even better again next time around. That's not even her best. Uh, and he made a good point that she could have even rated higher with a bit more tempo in the race. So just an outstanding performance by Arcadia Queen. Everyone knows that I'm uh, very bullish on Russian Camelot, and, and I could find some excuses for him. I don't want to talk it up too much, but he did tend to over-race uh, and didn't really want to settle uh, in the lead. And now that I see the splits that he went, it's not hard to see why. He was really, really crawling along in front for the first half of that race. So I'm happy to still stick with him uh, moving into the Cox Plate in a bigger field with a bit more tempo, and maybe they'll elect to ride him quieter as well. So I'm definitely not jumping off. Any, if anything, might give us a bit better price on the day. So, uh, yeah, not jumping off Russian Camelot, but uh, Arcadia Queen, hard to argue she was the star performer.
1: Yeah, those sectionals are outstanding and just it's a simple question and more pace on she would have uh, won by further. And then a lot of people would have said the exact same about the Russian Camelot, uh, better pace up front. He probably gets in a better rhythm, yeah, um, right. probably goes up a couple of years too. So it's one of those factors where they probably both improve. So it sets up a cracking next matchup race. Um, I thought she was outstanding. It was a great win. Um, we'll move on to your merit horses before I'll get to your horses to follow out of the meeting.
0: Yeah, so I've kind of put them in the same category almost. The merit horses are also the horses I'm going to uh, chuck in my black book. So Dirty Work was the first one that came uh, to mind for me. It ran the fastest last 800, 600 and 400 of the meeting uh, and was a touch unlucky maybe not to gain that last ever a slot that went to Hawkbury on her uh, coming off those kind of sectionals on Saturday. But nonetheless, unfortunately, doesn't grab a slot. Uh merit Horses, uh, coming out of race one, which is the two-year-old race, I'm always happy to put some in the black book out of that. The top three uh, in finishing order there went straight into the black book. Fake Love, uh, obviously jumped and led, looks a real good type, able to hold that high cruising speed. Uh, a merit Horse Extreme Warrior who was off the bit and struggling on the turn, looked like it was going to run last uh, and really rallied well through the line uh, to grab second. And also Naples, the third place getter, uh, had a really good jump out leading in, was supposed to run uh, against General Bow and the other Godolphin horse who won uh, last weekend, saved for this uh, occasion, and got through the line really, really well. Looks like it's got a bit of talent, keen to see it step out in trip. Another one is Off, big merit horse, big black book horse. There's lots of improvement uh, to come with Off. Ob- obviously, Windstorm was the best horse in that race, but moving forward, Off is the one I'd want to be with. Broadway and fourth, found the line really strongly at big odds from back in the field. I'm happy to follow it going forward. Instant Celebrity, who I tipped, was just given a Mission Impossible job, to be honest, in the group one uh, and ran extremely well under the circumstances for Craig Williams. Uh, Instant Celebrity is one uh, in the autumn or or even in a year's time in the spring again that is going to be a serious, serious group one horse. And Ole Kirk is the last one I'll chuck in there. Had a really good uh, weight for age rating with Daniel O'Sullivan and, and should have been higher, apparently, had it not run into Tagaloa, who was drifting uh, through the field on the turn. So, uh, you know, probably already in everyone's black books already, but Ole Kirk Merritt Horse could have gone even better had circumstances permit. But yeah, there's a few there we can chuck in the black book.
1: Yeah, for sure. I like that you mentioned Ole Kirk. Uh, the wind looks very good to the eye. And then you go back and look through the run and keep an eye on him. He gets to take a lower back in his lap and then sort of has to go back um, and out and then wide and still knuckle down late and chase down the, the horse out in front. Uh, I like all those horses to follow. So there's a couple that punters can write down. Um, what do we got up
0: next, Louis? Beautiful. So before we jump into our big uh, Group 1 level chat, let's say, Dino, with uh, our special guest on today, we'll have a quick chat about the Everest um, before we get there. Obviously, it's almost like a grand final week uh, as as we move towards the race on Saturday. The field is now fully locked in. So as I said before, Hortbury on her gains that final slot. Chris Wallace sells it off for one year to three Bridges Thoroughbreds. Uh, it's actually quite a fitting one, Dino. The the horse was raised at the farm, so quite fitting for three Bridges to be able to get that slot. And Brenton of Dulla takes the ride. What did you think of that acquisition?
1: Yeah, I thought it was a nice touch there for sure. I don't think they had many uh, chances left. I think it came out in the media too. I was reading this morning um, that Dirty Works had a tough prep, they said. Um, so I don't think it was ever going to go to the Everest. I think a lot of punters, punters probably had it as next pick. But I was hearing that it's, um, it, this might be spell time after the weekend's win. Um, it's had a tough prep. had that probably gut, big gut buster first up when chasing Nature Ship and gitra, So I thought he's had an outstanding prep. Um, but... Looking at it, Wallace Master Trainer fourteen hundred now back to twelve hundred after that um, cracking first up run. I don't think you can go wrong. Horse is going to put itself on on speed and give a sight. Um, I think she's she's got the talent to win for sure. Um, it's just whether or not you think she can win from what barrier she draws, the form around her. So there is absolutely no knock, and um, it's nice fitting way, like you said, she comes out of the same uh, the farm. Sorry that took um, Chris Wallace spot for this year. Um, Puts their own horse that they bred uh, in the slot, so now I thought it was a touching, touching add to the to the Everest.
0: Yeah, really good. I I agree. Now uh, some news that's come out early this week. Uh, it was late on Monday night actually. Farnan is out of the Everest, uh, electing to go on a Coolmore path instead. Aquas was very quick actually to lock in uh, dollar for dollar for Ke- uh, Team McAvoy as the replacement. Now, a quick uh, look at dollar-for-dollar's form, and it kind of makes sense when you look at it. A second in the Group 2, Gilgai last start, beating Tefani and Ana Lane, who obviously will line up in the Everest. Uh, and two starts back was second in the Group 1, Sir Rupert Clark behind Behemoth, who also goes to the Everest. So it, while it took me by surprise uh, originally, um, it's not hard to see why uh, Aquas were keen to lock in dollar-for-dollar. Dollar. An interesting point to make is has never been to Sydney, uh, but has been on a, a Brisbane campaign, ran third in the duben 10,000, then struggled in the Kingsman Smith and the Strud broke, but obviously uh, is is somewhat able to handle uh, the Sydney way of going. What did you think of the uh, late swap f- uh, in dollar for dollar?
1: Yeah, I didn't think it was a bad decision at all. I think they sort of had forced their hand. Uh, the horse is in form. Like you said, the form around her, uh, is, is very good. Um, and like you said, you're taking a horse who's up and ready. You're not, you're not taking a chance that the horse is going to come up a prep, um, runs on the board, puts itself on pace, makes its own luck. I think if anything, the horses such as Tefani, Santa Ana Lane, um, Bivouac, even Behemoth, Libertini, the back markers they'll sort of be um, quietly excited that another front-running horse comes into the picture. Um, we definitely know we're going to get a hot tempo now. You've got Nature Strip up front. Um, Eduardo will go there. Aubrey on her, dollar for dollar now. Um, so I think we're going to go at a nice, steady um, pace up in front. So I think for everyone, it's probably a tick. And like you said, I think there's a, there might be a cheeky stat around. I think the last sort of two or three horses, the last couple of years that have been taken, have all finished um, in the placing. So it's maybe not a bad thing to be waiting this long to find that horse in form. But yeah, they'll probably force their hand a little bit, but you could always have worse choices.
0: That's it. Well, we can speak off air, Dino, but I'm very happy to give you a big, big price for dollar for dollar if you want to back it. You know I that that I always like to take on the McAvoy team. No you know, offense to them. It's just uh, something that I can do in my punting. So we can speak off air about what price I'll give you for that. I'm not going to tell anyone else. But a quick look at the market. Uh, classic Legend $4.50 favorite, Gitra 5.00. Nature Strip, 6. And keep in mind, this is only a few days to go. The barriers have not been drawn yet. This is a market pre-barrier draw for anyone listening. Libertini, 7s. Gee, that's not a bad price. Behemoth, 11. Bivouac, 13. Eduardo, 15. Tafane, 17. Center Ana Lane and Trekking, 21 apiece. Hortbury on her, 26. And dollar for dollar, 34. Outsider, obviously, barrier draw to come on Tuesday. That leads very, very well into the interview we're about to have. So without further ado, uh, let's jump into it. We're thrilled to be joined on the podcast today by one of Australia's most informed riders at the current moment. He sits second on the New uh, New South Wales Jockeys Premiership, but only one win. Uh, He's come out the gates in some scintillating form this season already, a 22% winning strike rate and already two Group 1 victories under his belt. He's competed amongst some of the toughest racing jurisdictions in the world with numerous successful stints in Hong Kong. He was fifth in the Everest last year, third in 2018, and I'm sure he's hungry to go a few better this time around. A big welcome to the podcast, Tommy Berry. Thanks for joining us, mate.
2: Uh, My pleasure, guys. How are you?
0: Very, very well now. Uh, Well, just quickly for the punters out there who might not know uh, a lot about your life outside of racing before we obviously move in, Uh, to the Everest we'll get a bit about uh, your background and tell us a bit about uh, your life growing up and and the relationship and the competition obviously that uh, you and your brother Nathan had as you both uh, moved in into the industry around the same time
2: yeah we're we're very lucky obviously to have our parents uh, well into the industry uh, with my my father being a jockey uh, when he was younger and then obviously started training after that and, and my mother uh, being well a part of the industry uh, for many years uh, since she was 18 as well. So we had a really good grounding there and we were uh, born and raised at Warwick Farm from uh, the start till well, probably about 21 uh, till we moved away from there. So um, we, we grew up around the horses and the trainers and uh, were amongst it. And uh, we really got a, a, a liking and a passion, um, not so much for wanting to be a jockey, but just wanting to be a part of the industry in one one way or another. We really fell in love with the animal and um we had you know a lot of good times growing up with them and i was able as you said to to share that passion with my brother which is very special um we spent every minute of every day together um whether it was at school or or, or growing up um and then being able to share a passion like racing with him it just meant that we got to spend more time together um and uh looking back on that now it's a lot of special memories but um we started uh, around the stables when, you know, mucking our boxes when we were eight or nine and, and then started riding. Um, we, we, we started uh, – we got taught how to ride when we were about 10 years old and um, that went on to buying uh, ponies at, at Camden sales and breaking them in with, with Paul Cave. Uh, and My father was assistant trainer to, for about the good part of 13 years um, and then selling them back there uh, months later and – uh, that taught us uh, good grounding and, and, you know, how to ride properly, uh, not just to get on a, a racehorse and, and put up your irons and ride short. It, um, taught you more about being a horseman more than just a rider. And, and it's things like that that I look back on now, um, that I'm very thankful for having that upbringing because it's, uh, you know, this day and age. Unfortunately, a lot of the young riders that come into sport don't, uh, get that, you know, luxury of, um, learning them sort of, you know, things before they get chucked in, into riding racehorses straight away. So um, we did that and uh, started our trials at the age of about 14 and a half, 15, and, and never looked back after that.
0: And then uh, you and your brother uh, also started at your very first meeting together in Hawkesbury of, of t- uh, in 2006. Uh, tell us a bit about what you remember of that day. Obviously, it would have been a very special day, not only for Nathan and yourself, but your family as well
2: yeah it was it was a proud moment for them all um I remember my brother being quite frustrated at the time uh because he was he was a very natural writer he was quite gifted and everything seemed to come um team quite quite comfortably and easily where i was um i really had to work at things um it just didn't come natural to me at all and uh, I had to practice a lot more and and spend more hours um Learning more about my craft and and so Nathan obviously got more opportunities uh, earlier than I did and he he was getting offered race rides uh, before I even uh, got a look in and I remember my father saying to to Nathan that he, he's not allowed to take a, a ride until uh, I got one because so, he wanted us to have our first ride on the same day and and that happened in two thousand six as you said where uh, we both had our first ride at Hawksbend it was a memorable day we had all the family there and um my my horse on the day missed a kick by about four or five lengths and ran last. And Nathan's missed a kick by three or four lengths as well and ran last. So um, it was a it was a strange one. But I remember leaving the course that day and my father saying, "Well, it can only get better from here." So um, and he was right. At, uh, things started to, to improve not long after.
1: Yeah, welcome again to the podcast, Tommy. It's Dean here, mate. Um, you quickly established yourself. As a leading jockey in the Sydney ranks, um, but it took around that six-year mark before you broke that illustrious Group One win. Uh, Epaulet was that horse in the Golden Rose. Tell us about that day and about that win. Yeah, no, it was very special for me, Dean. Um, as you said, it
2: it took me quite a while to get my first Group One winner. As I said, it took um, you know I wasn't I wouldn't wouldn't have counted myself as a naturally gifted rider at the start. It took a lot of practice and hard work and um, you know, and, and it took a lot of a lot of hard work to get to that point. But um, that was, uh, you know, getting to ride an epaulette uh, was was very special. It was a bit of a late call-up. Uh, I remember they asked Damien Brown to uh, come and ride um, him on the day. Uh, he was riding to Doomban and he decided to stay at Doomban and take a full book there instead of coming to, um, to Sydney to ride epaulette, who, who he obviously thought was a the second second seed um, of Darley's, uh they had all in the race as well, which Kieran McAvoy had chosen to ride as a stable rider um, and I, I picked him up and for me it was special because uh you know I grew up around Peter um he he was like family to me growing up um, he was assistant trainer to, to John Hawks and um, and Crown Lodge at that stage and uh, so you know every single morning that I was riding at the track as a young kid uh, he was there and We obviously grew a really strong bond and for him to provide me with my first Group 1 win was very special, not only for me, but for my family. um, It really kicked off my career from there to to get, uh, you know, a a Group 1 for for Peter and Sheikh Mohammed and um, the whole Dali operation.
1: It seems as though after that Group 1 win, uh, everything sort of took off after that. Uh, Within a a year of that, sorry, you went on to win a Group 1 in Hong Kong aboard a military attack. How did it feel winning, winning an international Group One at the age of 22?
2: Yeah, it was quite a shock for me. Um, I, I didn't really have any massive ambitions of going to Hong Kong. It, for me, it seemed um, like a dream um, that was that was sort of in the future. That I didn't feel it, it'd come along that quick. But I sort of burst on the scene. Uh, you know, as you said, it took me a while to get that first Group One win, and I was stable rider right for Gay uh, Waterhouse at that stage. So. Uh, I got on some pretty handy horses and and racked up a few group ones quite quickly and it was um that came along after I won the golden slipper um on on overreach and the Doncaster i think also um might have been on sacred falls and it wasn't long after that I, I got a call from Hong Kong to come over and and uh, take a three month stint over there and um I obviously accepted that uh straight away and um, two days later, I was mucking out boxes at my father's stable and I got a call from John Moore and um, I, I, it felt like it was a prank call to me. And he rang and he said, um, look, uh, Zach Pertins, um chose to ride ambitious Dragon in the Queen Elizabeth, um, would you like to ride military attack on your first meeting here in Hong Kong in, in the QE2, which is one of their, their best races of the year. And I was uh, obviously in shock and, and obviously accepted the ride very quickly and and I'd only been off the plane, I think, for about four or five hours uh, before I jumped on military attack and, and took out one biggest races. So it was a dream come true to me. It was a, a bit of a blurry day. I, I don't remember too much about the day. It all happened so quickly, but um, it put me in very good stead uh, for, for the coming three months in Hong Kong. I think I uh, broke um, broke the record for the most amount of winners uh, for a jockey riding in a three-month stint over there at the time. Uh, so it was, a, it, was, it was a really good time for me.
0: It's an unbelievable story, mate. You mentioned that obviously you spent that uh, three-month stint in Hong Kong. Now, I also spent three months overseas when I was 22, but within four hours of stepping up the plane, I think I was at a bar rather than riding a Group <laughs> 1 winner. Um, but how how influential uh, was that stint in such a strong racing jurisdiction so early in your career? How, how did it influence uh, your career at the time and then onwards as well?
2: Yeah, well, it, it definitely sharpened me up as a rider. I remember my first meeting over there. I had, I think, um, five or six rides before military attack, and I, I think I got lost in every single one uh, because the speed over there, of their races was so fast. The jockeys are so competitive because they're all from different parts of the world. Um, so there's there's not many mates out there, especially a new jockey like me coming in. I was young. I was fresh blood for them. And um, I remember getting to the Group 1 and saying, well, you know, I, I've got to pull my finger out here and, and – you know, make it, have a really good go of it. I've, I've just been getting shoved around left, right and centre and, and being made look like an idiot. No, but that's the way I felt anyway. And, you know, I went out and gave it one of the best rides I possibly could have and um, from there, it obviously, I grew a great relationship with John Moore but um, more importantly, when I got home, oh, I felt like it really sharpened me up as a rider and, and um, put a bit more of a killer instinct into me and and when I got back to Australia after doing three months, um, I really took off from there.
0: Now, obviously, this could be quite a quite hard question to answer. Um, you've ridden some outstanding horses in your career to date. Obviously, we just mentioned Military Attack. Uh, based off the time form ratings, Design on Rome actually rates as the highest. But then you've also had Chautauqua and uh, and et cetera. So who do you think that you can rate as the best that you've been on uh, in your career so far?
2: Uh, Chautauqua w- was the best that probably because he, he actually very similar designs on Rome. They they are the two best I've ridden designs on Rome in, in Chitakwa and they did things that uh, you know, normal horses can't do and they obviously both raced at the back of the field. Um Chittacqua could, you know, accelerate incredibly quick for eight hundred meters. Uh, he ran some stimulating times and you know, not you know, most horses can only sprint for two to three hundred meters, but he, he had a really strong finish on him and he started to make his run from the half mile and he was running you know, sub. You know, inside it. You know, about eleven, eleven and a half. Um, from the half mile home and designs and Rome was very much the same when he won his Derby and the QE2. I was able to make two or three runs on him in a race and, you know, and, and put him into the race at a ridiculous stage and and he was able to su- sustain that, You know, really long run and you know, they're probably the two best I've ridden. I was I had the pleasure of winning a Group Two race on Winks before she became what she was and you know, I rode some really nice when I, I had a couple of good stints in Japan. the uh, champion a champion three-year-old who, who went to win a, um, a a couple of group ones in, in Japan. His name escapes me at the moment. He stands at Arrowfield. Um, but I, I got to ride him in a group one over in Japan and just got beat uh, by the bob of the head. But, um, you know, so I, I've been really lucky to ride some some really classy gallopers. But, um, you know, I'd have to say Shittaker and Designs and road were the two best.
0: And the thing about Shittaker is as well, I guess, that he was – Probably the biggest character of a horse that you've ever been on. Obviously, we all know uh, what happened in the end. But did you find that he was just such an amazing mind and an amazing character of his own?
2: Yeah, him and uh, another horse I had a bit of luck on, uh, Pakistan Star, yeah. were very similar in, in their antics. Um, they were both very, very much loners, um, and that was at yeah. home in their boxes or whether it was at track work or even in a race, they just wanted to be left alone and um, they they had a mind of their own as well. and, and um, what made them so good uh, when they were at their best is what probably uh, came against them in the end. You know they were they were such brilliant horses um, that were very strong minded and and when they wanted to do something they they did it and put one hundred and ten percent to everything they did. But when it comes to you know not wanting to do it anymore, they were very strong minded at that as well and, and um, couldn't be persuaded to to do otherwise. So were, you know and. and Talk about very good horses, Pakistan Star. When I won him in the Champions League Cup after he took out the QE2, uh, he was airborne at that stage and um, it was probably one of the most impressive wins I was, I've been a part of in my career. So um, it, it's amazing that they are such quirky animals and, and difficult to deal with but so good at their craft at the same time.
1: There's nothing quite like a backmarker, like you mentioned, Chautauqua and Pakistan Star. Flying over the top late, I think that's the pinnacle of racing for all punters, riders, uh, everyone involved. Just on Hong Kong and the riding ranks there, you know, give the punters and the listeners a little insight into what's it like to be a jockey over there.
2: It's uh, it's very tough. Um, you know, obviously over in Hong Kong, people might not know, but you, you um, pretty much live in each other's pocket over there. There's a set of apartments which is on the race course. It's uh, about, um, you know, 150 metres from the winning post. And you all live in, in that block of apartments together, you and your family. So you you ride work together, um, you you stand in a lift together, going up and down. Um, you you pretty much um you're at the races together, you, you live in each other's pockets. So you could have an argument with um, you know, one of the boys at the races and then you gotta you're pretty much walking home with him and, and living next door to him, uh, which can make it difficult at times and the the jockeys were over there are so competitive and uh Obviously, you've got a lot of different nationalities over there and, and they can clash at times. And, um, that happened very often. And the jockey's room over there is very competitive, um, and, and very tough. And, um, you know, so, and, 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 the racing on the track was the same. So you had to be very strong minded and very strong willed, uh, to make it over there and, and have to be able to, 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 you know, cop that criticism and, and cop that banter, um, that went on over there. And, uh, you know, it's not for everyone. Um, I, I definitely enjoy racing here uh, much more here in Australia um, at this time, especially with the family. But uh, when I had my three months since over there, I, I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. You know, if I could do three months here and there all the time, it'd, it'd be great. But doing it, you know, a full year or a few years over there probably doesn't interest me right yet. But, um, you know, they're definitely one of the strongest riding ranks I've ever had a You know the pleasure of riding against, and you know it's it's definitely one of the strongest jurisdictions anywhere that I've ridden in the world. So um, it's it's uh, a place that uh, you know you've got to be on your game and at your best when you go over there. And it doesn't so much mean matter, sorry, what you've done in in your own country. Uh, Once you go over there, uh, it's it's a different kettle of fish, and you've got to start at the bottom and work your way back up to the top.
1: And Getting back to a bit of Aussie racing, you're in cracking form at the moment this season so far with the group ones like we mentioned before, on um, Ole Kirk in the Golden Rose, Colding in the group, uh, the George Main, sorry. Uh, is there anything you've done different this season uh, in terms of preparation? Um, what, what's your secret to success over the last couple of months?
2: Yeah, probably just, um, you know, I, uh, after my brother passed, um, I was in pretty bad way for quite a while. Uh, not many people probably know about it, just uh, mentally wasn't in the, in the right frame of mind and for a good few a few years there, um, you know, I had a lot of luck uh, not long after Nathan passed. I'm not sure how or why, uh, but I, I had a bit of a good run there. But then I, I was sort of in and out of form a lot for a, a couple of years um, and that was just due to me uh, having no preparation going to the races. Um, mentally, I was in a pretty bad way, uh, suffering depression and um, struggling to deal with with the loss of of Nathan and not having him, him in my in my in my life anymore, so I just you know find a way to get around that. And at the start, I was um, I was sort of fixing my problems with alcohol and uh, and and you know not not having a proper preparation going to the races, just turning up and, and hoping for the best. And that went on for a couple of years, and um, it, it took you know my wife to. Sort of say to me that things have got to change and they've got to get better because the way I was going was, you know, it was a downward spiral and it wasn't looking good. So I um I actually went and saw a sports psychologist and, and got a lot of help and uh, through through that and he um showed me ways to, to deal with um you know um you know depression in in, in a better way and obviously helped me deal with um, the loss of my brother in different ways and. Um, just helped me you know get through a, a tough part of my life and, and now that you know the last 12 months I feel like oh, I'm, I'm eating really well I, I don't drink uh, unless it's on a weekend uh, which is great um, I'm very fit I'm working out I'm doing my form and I'm preparing so well at home and everything's going great at home so by the time I get to the races on race day I'm in the best possible form I could be in I've done everything right at home and I've ticked all those boxes and, and I can feel the difference when I get to the races. I'm, I'm getting there, you know, so well prepared. Uh, I have just need the horses to perform well and for me to put them in the right spot. And, you know, the last 12 months, I really feel, uh, you know, everything, you know, all the change I've made at home and the help I'm getting through sports. So I've really um, set the tough for, for, you know, being able to achieve it in the last 12 months.
0: Mate, that's a really inspiring message and I, I think – holds a lot of value not only for for athletes like yourself but everyone in general too and it just shows how uh, important the mental side of things can be to to uh, Im- improving you know your form but your overall state of life as well so that's a thanks for you know opening up about that that's a that's a really good point now uh, before Tommy we get on to this year's edition of the everest uh, we'd, we'd love to know what the vibe and the discussion is amongst the jockeys about what this race means to you all is it a big talking point amongst everyone
2: yeah, it is now. Um, it's obviously, it came as a bit of a shock to us. Um, obviously, a, a, a race of that nature, which isn't as
0: a Group 1 status, but holds such high prize money. Um, you know, it was,
2: we didn't know much about it when it first came on the scene. Peter Bellini sort of threw it out there. Um, we didn't know how long it was going to be around for or what sort of traction it would get from the, the public. But obviously, it's it's turned out to be one of the best races of the year. And um, the, the crowd really gets behind it, creates a massive atmosphere, not just um, the day it, itself, but, you know, the, the Everest is talked about from, you know, Sunday after the Everest about who's going to win it next year. And it and, and talks around all year about it. So it's created it. A massive interest throughout the community and the, um, the racing community, I should say, and, and and us jockeys, we're we're looking for the next good sprinter, um, aiming for that race in the following
0: year. And do you think it might be a bit different this year? Obviously, um, that crowd that they get out Randwick the past three years, it's like it's such an electric atmosphere. It's almost akin to that of a, of a Melbourne Cup or a big race like that. Does does the lack of crowds per se this year change anything about about the build up to the day for you guys?
2: I, I don't think so, and the only reason being is because we haven't had um, crowds at the races for so long. So even though it's not going to be near the the amount of people that we've had there in the in the past couple of years, because there's because you've got a crowd back at the races, um, it feels like there's you know a hundred thousand people there. But um, so it's actually we're just happy to have people back at the races. It creates a great atmosphere, and, and it's something we're really enjoying again.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Now you had the ride on. Pirata last year and you got an outstanding third place uh, on Osborne Bulls in 2018. I'm sure everyone remembers that ride uh, right down the outside fence. But those two uh, those two uh, results, ha- has that made you hungry to come back this year and go for the win?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it was very exciting with Osborne Bulls. a couple of years ago down the outside fence. and thought sort I of had a great ride in Pirata last year. He was a little bit unlucky, but, um, you know, as I said it, you know, you start looking for your next good sprinter to go into the race. Um, you know, after the weekend, and it's it's a twelve month process to find that good horse to go in it. And you know, I'm lucky enough that I've ended up on Tafane, who's a great chance, and she's um, she's a, a well represented mare. And um, yeah, you know, it's 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 definitely like any race. Once you've had, had a had a ride in it, like a Melbourne Cup, you just want to get out and do it again tomorrow.
0: Well, that's it. We bring it into uh, 2020's edition coming up in a few days. You mentioned you're on Tafane. Uh, for the Ulong investment slot. What have you made of her prep uh, so far down in Melbourne?
2: Yeah, it's been great. Uh, she's been ticking over nicely. Uh, she only got just got beat first up and she was a little bit big in condition. And then last start, obviously, in the Gil guy, never got any room down the straight. Um, she looked impressive and they ran home in very quick time, uh, 33 and change. So she's ticking along great. Um, the team's very happy with her. Um, she's obviously got that really good, uh, Sydney form from the autumn, where she was placed in a Galaxy, uh, was a an eye-catching fifth in in a TJ Smith, and then obviously beat the well-represented um, uh, Pierrata in the All Age Stakes. So um, she's you know she's taken all before her so far, and she's had a perfect preparation so far as well. So really looking forward to her stepping out
0: again. And you mentioned that uh, Randwick and that Sydney form from last prep. Obviously she's a Group One winner. Uh, over 1,400 metres at Ranwick, How important do you feel that uh, that ability over the longer trip is in a race like the Everest, that although only 1,200 metres, is always a really strongly run race? So do you think it's important for uh, or to have a horse that has that ability at the top level over a bit further? Yeah,
2: definitely. Um, you know, the 1,200 at Randwick's always a tough 1,200, and especially with a horse like Nature Strip in a race, um, that's what sort of brought me undone with Pirata at, Know, a couple of times he's at nature strip just he, he dragged the sprint out of me uh, quite a bit on that horse and by the time i'd got to nature strip he, he, he finds another another kick and that's how he beats most of his rivals he runs at such a strong tempo and it it gets everyone right off the bit a long way out and has him chasing where you know he's got that really really strong 1400 meter form um she can sustain a long run which we've seen in the, in the tj smith and um you
0: know she's just a, a brilliant mare, and once I've, uh, mayors get informed. form; um, they're very hard to beat, no matter what they're in. That's it. Now, a lot of the Everest chances actually stepped out this morning, Tuesday morning at the track. Did you get a, to uh, to sit on Tafano this morning?
2: No, uh, she worked in Melbourne, and I believe she's going to travel down on Thursday. And that's pretty much
0: what most horses do now, whether they go from Sydney to Melbourne or Melbourne to Sydney. Uh, most stables like to keep them uh,
2: at home um, where they can look after them, especially. At the moment, with making it hard with staff to travel and themselves, at least they can keep an eye on their horses and they send them down Thursday night. Obviously, they have a light can of Friday and they're ready to go on Saturday. So, um, you know, the team's assured me that she's in great form and, um, you know, they're very excited about her coming, coming down on Thursday, Thursday night.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Now, uh, how do how do you expect this race to play out in terms of um, some speed and some tactics? Obviously, Farnan a withdrawal early in the week, but quickly replaced by Dollar for Dollar, who's also uh, a go forward horse. Obviously, then you have your Nature Strips uh, and and that kind of stuff. How how do you find that this race will play out? Yeah, I think it will be run fast. Um, you know, James has kept a hold of Nature Strips
2: last couple of starts, but I really think you'll let him run in the Everest like you did in TJ Smith last year. And then you've got El Dorado, who's got um, blistering speed on the day. He uh, did in the trial the other day, anyway. Um, and you know, there's, there's a bit of speed right across the board. And obviously, Aubrey on hers very fast. Um, so you know, I, I think the, the race will be run fast, and uh, you know, be you know, the survival of the fittest, the best horse, I think, will win at the end. But you know, a lot of people have dropped off Daisy of Street, but I think he's still the number one seed to
0: beat. Uh, now the barrier draw obviously taking place uh, Tuesday night. Is there any any barrier that you'd you'd prefer to draw, or, or are you happy to to get in anywhere?
2: Oh look, five and eight probably going to sit my mare well. She she settles around midfield, and I wouldn't like to draw in too close and then get locked away on the fence. Um, she likes a bit of galloping room, so if I can draw sort of middle of the outside, will probably suit her, her, her nice and well. She's uh, she's going to be behind the main speed and. She'll be in the line nice and strong, mate.
0: And from a personal perspective, Tommy, what, what would a win in the Everest mean to not only yourself but your family as well?
2: Obviously, financially, it's, it's very good. Um, and I think it's a race that's going to be around for a long time, so it's going to be in the record books. Uh, honestly, like if you, if you ask about dreams, if, you, if I've dreamt of winning in Everest, um, not really. I don't think that the race has been around that long, but it's a race that um, you know I feel like it's faster becoming you know our biggest race in Sydney. Um, not not the most prestigious, right yet, but definitely one of our biggest. And um, you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, my kids really want to get hold of that trophy, so um, I think it's they'll probably get a lot
0: more enjoyment out of it than me. That's for sure. That's it. Well, at least you've got um, someone to do it for your kids. They'd love you to win an Everest, so that's that's always a good driving factor. Now, after the Everest, um, there's always obviously a big decision to be made, especially uh, during these times. Will you be heading down to Melbourne? Uh, to join a few others down there, or are we going to stay up in Sydney and, and try and dominate the rest of the spring up here?
2: Yeah, I think I'll stay here. I'm, you know, I've had a really good start to the season, and I'd like to keep that momentum going. Um, so more than likely, stay here for that. It's, it's it's always a tough time going to Melbourne, especially at the moment where you've got to do your two weeks quarantine in a hotel on the way back. And uh, I'm not someone that uh, is is very comfortable sitting in a hotel for fourteen days straight. So. Um, yeah, if I had some really good rides, I, I had a couple of rides off in the Melbourne Cup, which were nice, but it's only, unfortunately, one race that you've got to sacrifice three weeks for. So, um, unfortunately, I'll, I'll give that up and just continue my good form, hopefully, in Sydney, and hopefully get back down to Melbourne next year because this spring in Melbourne, there's not too many big, better things in racing. It's, it's incredible.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, obviously, moving uh, forward for the rest of the spring and then, into the autumn next year, there's uh, the two-year-old races are obviously always a huge talking point, and they start to step out at the trials and their race debuts. Uh, you've obviously also got a very strong connection with the Waterhouse Bot Stable, who are well-known for their uh, early two-year-old types. Have there any uh, that have caught your eye so far that you're keen to stick with going forward, maybe into a slipper next year?
2: Uh, you know, I rode Construct um, for Team Snow. Uh, in the first two-year-old race of the year in the uh, Breeders. he feels very impressive running second. Jay's um, obviously, she's always got plenty of nice two-year-olds and so did the Hawks team. Um, Hawks team has a couple of nice star turns coming through that aren't named yet. Um, but no, I, I'm looking forward to getting on a couple of them. Um, I, I think uh, especially the Hawks team, they'll, they'll step out some of their two-year-olds out in the next sort of month or so. Um, but... Yeah, it's just an exciting time of year. I'm always looking for a nice two-year-old, and I always seem to find myself on the back of a nice one. So I'm hoping
0: this year can be the same. That's it for sure. Now, before we let you go, Tommy, we've got some uh, quick-fire questions that we're going to run at you. Just the first answer off the top of your head, as always, uh, and we'll go through these ones now. So your post-Group 1 victory beverage of choice? A uh, vodka lemonade. That's it. Uh, it was a uh, Belvedere, wasn't it, or a Grey Goose? Uh, but-
2: Great, Goose or velvety, yeah. really two
0: are nice. Beautiful. Now, your favourite track to ride at? I'd say Ram Week in Tokyo in
2: Japan.
0: Yep, beautiful. Uh, what's that big race that you want to win or win again? Uh, Melbourne Cup. Uh, now, this one's going to hurt me as a Roosters fan, but do you think the Raiders will go all the way in the NRL this year? Definitely. <laughs> and what does the future hold in, in a sentence or two for, for Tommy Berry as a rider? Uh,
2: just to be the best man I can and, hopefully get some success
0: along the way. That's beautiful. Now, also, before we let you go as well, Dean and I, uh, as, as a lot of our listeners know, are very keen on our uh, beers and our tinnies, especially during the podcast. Uh, tell us a bit about the St Andrews Beach Brewery that you've got going at the moment down uh, down in Victoria.
2: Yeah, well, it's been, um, it's been around for four years now. It's fast becoming a, a popular, not just a venue, but um, anywhere, everywhere around the world. Uh, I think we shipped to about eight or nine different countries at the moment. And uh, we're all over Melbourne in parts of Sydney and uh, once the, the pandemic's over, getting to Queensland and, um, and, uh, and, and WA as well. So it's a popular beer. There's, there's seven different beers uh, on tap, and then we've got two um, Celsius as well. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you just want to have a look, just go onto the website uh, on either Twitter, Facebook or Instagram, and it's um, at SABB. .com.au.
0: So uh, give it a try. Beautiful. And if you're looking for any uh taste testers, Tommy, I'll tell you, Dean and I, we have a pretty good palette and a pretty good review of some beers. So if you if you need someone to try them out, don't hesitate to ask at all. But we'll get some up here in, in Sydney and try them out ourselves. Mate, thank you uh so much for coming on the pod. It's a it's a massive pleasure to be able to talk to you and uh from, from Dean and I and and all the listeners as well. We wish you the very, very best, not only this week in the Everest. Uh, but for the rest of the spring until we catch up again. Thanks for coming on, mate.
2: Thanks, mate. Appreciate you having me
0: on the show. Take care. Ta. Thanks, Tommy. Tommy Berry there for the Clerks of the Course podcast, as always, powered by the Sporting Base. Head over to the sportingbase.com.au for any tips, news, not only in racing but in sport as well. Great interview there by Tommy Berry.